This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Stephanie Cohen, Goldman Sachs' Chief Strategy Officer. Today, I'm excited to be joined by three founders of high-growth venture-backed companies who are part of our inaugural Launch with GS Entrepreneur Cohort. Helen Ediosin, founder and CEO of Care Academy, Sean Mitchell, who is co-founder and CEO of Resi, and Max Tuckman, co-founder and CEO of Caribou. Thank you all for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm going to start by explaining what our entrepreneur cohort is. It is a customized and virtual eight-week experience that provides an opportunity for Black and Latinx founders to access the best of Goldman Sachs. From internal industry experts to our external network, while building relationships with investors. And on that point on investors, I want to spend a couple of minutes on the venture space and venture capital investment, particularly for teams who identify as women, Black, Latinx, or other diverse populations. At Goldman Sachs, we view diversity as a business imperative. Companies led by diverse management teams leverage a range of perspectives to better compete in a global economy. We see this in the data. Companies in the top quartile for ethnic diversity are 33% more likely to have industry-leading profitability, and those in the top quartile for gender diversity are 21% more likely to outperform. And on the fund side, diverse-owned funds are overrepresented in the top quartile of private equity funds. The statistics speak for themselves. However, just under 3% of venture capital in the United States goes to women-led teams, and only 1% goes to Black and Latinx founders. Across venture capital and private equity more broadly, of the $69 trillion of global financial assets under management, less than 1.3% is managed by women and people of color. It is this market imbalance, coupled with our belief that diverse teams outperform, that is the catalyst behind Launch with GS. Through Launch with GS, we're increasing access to capital and facilitating connections for women, Black, Latinx, and other diverse entrepreneurs and investors, because we see this misallocation of capital as an investment opportunity. As part of this initiative, we were thrilled to welcome a select group of founders and CEOs for our first ever Black and Latinx entrepreneur cohort this summer. They are building fast-growing companies at the forefront of innovation and technology, Helen, Max, and Sean were part of the group of 14 companies selected from over 400 applications to be in our inaugural group. And we are thrilled to have you in the program. I'm thrilled to be joined with, by you today. So let's dive in on some questions. Before we get into the individual questions, what I'd really like to do is have each of you give your what we'll call 30-second elevator pitch on your business. So Helen, we'll start with you, and then we'll go to Max and then Sean. Absolutely. Hi, everyone. My name is Helen Adiosin. I'm the CEO and founder of Care Academy. Care Academy is the leading talent management software that is skilling and reskilling for the future of healthcare. Hi, I'm Max. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Caribou. Caribou is the leading educational family entertainment platform for kids ages 0 to 13 to have virtual playdates with family and friends when they can't be physically together. And we truly upgrade the video call experience for kids so they can color together, play tic-tac-toe, read their favorite books in a shared screen video call with a loved one. Our in-app library has thousands of books, activities, recipes, coloring sheets, and games for families to share no matter how far apart they are. And Caribou is the world's first multi-platform video calling experience for kids and families, which helps our users in over 200 countries and territories share that magical experience no matter which device or platform they're on. 
Hi, everyone. My name is Sean Mitchell. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Resi. Resi is the only fully remote marketplace for long-term apartment rentals. Our entirely automated leasing process lets you find, tour, and lease your next apartment in as little as five minutes, all from your phone and all for free. Our mission is simple. We want to make finding your next rental home instant, accessible, and free. Great. I can't wait for us to dive in more on all of your businesses. I've enjoyed learning about them. But before we go into that, Max, can you give our listeners a little bit of a sense of what in the world it was like to be a part of the Launch with GS Entrepreneur Cohort? What did that look like? What did it feel like? Yeah, I think as a founder, you always have a lot of different options when it comes to accelerators or incubators or or cohort programs. And as a founder, I was really impressed with the way that the Launch with GS cohort was built because it was very personalized. I think there's a lot of options out there that are are kind of batch processing, right? Everyone kind of has to learn the same thing, no matter where you are as a business or what you need for your business specifically. And I felt like the Launch with GS program was very tailored and personalized to the issues we were having, the challenges we were having, or the opportunities we were trying to explore. And Goldman was really, truly amazing at making introductions to the right people, making sure that those doors were open for us, which a lot of times as founders, and especially as underrepresented founders, those warm intros are really the main thing that we need. So that was great. And I think the other amazing piece is as founders of color, it's so important for us to help each other out. So now that I know all of these amazing founders in the cohort, and I can always recommend them for investor opportunities or for other cohort experiences or for you know B2B partnerships, I now have a much larger group of people that I can continue to help and that are going to obviously you know help me in Caribou as well. So Sean, Max kind of talked about this, which is that there are a lot of options out there as it relates to accelerators and aggregators. Can you talk about how you would advise entrepreneurs to think about this, how to do it so it's most impactful for them and for their business? Yeah, I mean, I think you should always have a clear goal in mind, but echo some of the points that Max raised. I think first and foremost, I think most entrepreneurs think about an accelerator or company-sponsored program like this. It's top of mind is usually access to capital. I think the big advantage that these sorts of accelerators or sorts of programs give you is that it gives you a platform to tell your company's story, tell your vision and talk about why you're going to, you know, beat the competition to a large audience, usually of investors. And so, you know, that's very advantageous and it lets you kind of stick out from the crowd. I also think that in addition to that, there's a pretty clear advantage and Max, you touched on this a second ago. Also, I I think it's exactly right. There's a clear advantage of being able to see where other companies, regardless of if necessarily they're at the same stage as you are, but how other companies are solving the core problems that entrepreneurs face. You know, all entrepreneurs have to figure out how to acquire customers cheaply. All entrepreneurs have to figure out how to raise capital. All entrepreneurs have to figure out how to hire. And this is going to be fundamental problem set that you have to solve regardless of your industry, regardless of your stage. And it is very helpful, I think, to see and hear from other people who have similar seats, how they're approaching those problem sets. And so I think they're really those two key strategic ways to leverage these sorts of programs. One, I think top of mind is always, you know, access to capital and raising capital, particularly to address that imbalance that you touched on, Stephanie. But aside from that, building that network and building that data set of now I know how 14 other founders think about customer acquisition. So building on kind of that concept and and working together with other founders, I think we can all safely say that 2020 has not been a typical year for anyone, but certainly for an entrepreneur. So 
Let's talk about some of the changes that have been brought on by COVID-19 and how that's impacted your businesses. So Helen, let's start with you since you're working directly with more than 100,000 caregivers. What has this all been like? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the big takeaway for us going into this moment is never waste a good crisis. I think that can be said for any company and all the folks in the GS cohort. For us, it has meant leaning in. So March 11th was really, I think, our version of D-Day where the World Health Organization declared the pandemic. And we started to sort of running on all cylinders because what we've seen as a result in the last I mean, my goodness, five, seven months since that moment is that healthcare has really shifted to what we call post-acute. So outside of the hospital and outside of institutions and Care Academy has had to say on behalf of our customers and home care, this industry that we're so embedded in, how do we help raise their prospects and raise their platform so they're prepared for this very moment, this onslaught that we're going to see. And sure enough, Within the last couple months, we've seen folks who said, you know, my parent or my loved one may be getting care in a nursing home, but I want to look at other means of caring for my loved one. So that's going to be home care. What we do is essentially handle for the topmost priority of getting great health care, which are the people that provide health care. Those are the direct care workers, those are the caregivers. Within the first couple weeks, we had folks who were saying, how do I know that this person is safe entering my own home? And we developed the first class that was really meant to address safety concerns and issues related to COVID. So we've been leaning in really into this moment, into this crisis, and also taking the time to look out 30,000 foot in the midst of all of this to also say, where do we see these things going? What's the trend line? I think for all of healthcare, everything is just basically sped up by 10 years. And so we're doing that alongside almost at this point, a thousand different customers and now 200,000 direct care workers throughout the US and Canada. And I think that idea of speeding up previous trends is really important. It's something that I see across all of your businesses. So maybe Sean will go there, which is how has COVID-19 impacted the residential rental market? And what does that mean for your business? Yeah, I mean, I think (laughs) if I can highlight one word from my lead in, when I said remote, 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 that has been the mantra at Resi. You know, it's been our mantra, I think, ever since we started the company, but I think the priority and premium on being able to offer a fully remote, fully digital experience understandably and definitely took a priority for us coming into COVID. And, you know, look, I, I think the residential rental market has definitely been impacted by what has been, you know, I think a lack of willingness or a slowness to adopt to, you know, remote technologies and automated technologies. It was interesting, right? So we've monitored our leasing out performance. It's one of our key KPIs. How much faster does Resi lease departments versus the market? And historically, that number has been in and around 50%. And, you know, in the last quarter or so post-COVID, that number shot up to just under 90%, about 88%. And that additional speed is driven by the fact that at the end of the day, consumer tastes right now are really focused on social distancing, on, you know, making quick decisions, on transacting real estate online versus having to meet people in person. And I think having that technology has certainly had a pretty beneficial impact to our business. You know, our landlord client base has tripled. You know, our leasing velocity has actually accelerated in the middle of COVID versus slowed down. But I think the rental market as a whole, I think when people think real estate, they 
they kind of put real estate as like the Luddites of the, of the you know, technology world, world like you know, migrating from paper checks to collecting payments online is like a big theme in real estate. <laughs> I think what COVID's created is demand to you know, meet consumers where they are, meet tenants where they are. You know, tenants want to lease apartments. They want to buy houses. They want to conduct their banking transactions very similarly to the way they do other transactions. The way they get a car, the way they order food. You know, they want to be able to do it from their phone. They want to be able to do it instantly. And I think COVID has caused the industry to wake up to that reality and start to migrate there. And, you know, certainly for our business, it's you know, had some positive impact in the context that we're now able to facilitate that transition for a lot of landlords. Max, you started to give us a little bit of texture of what a virtual play date is like. And I've spent a bunch of time with you and you have a term glamour, which I'm going to insist that you explain. Yeah. But explain yes. like, why. <laughs> Love that term. Sorry. Did we interrupt? <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> Max, you started by giving us a little bit of texture for what a virtual play date is. But my guess is before COVID-19, there was a lot of people who didn't know what a virtual play date is. And a group of those people may be what you call the glamas. So, so can you give us a little bit of a sense for what it's been like in the current environment and how glamas has really been adopting Caribou? Yeah. So as you can imagine, we do virtual play dates for kids and families, especially as you said, glamas. Uh, that is the endearing way that we talk about our glamorous grandmas. In Spanish, by the way, it's fabuela, abuela fabulosa. And we specifically talk about grandma because she is 50 to 70. She's got the most disposable income in the country. She wants to spoil her grandchild, who it's a lot of times her first grandchild. She has the time. She's also super tech savvy. I think, you know, even Helen would agree that seniors are way more tech savvy than I think we give them credit for. And investors are starting to realize that this is a really interesting, lucrative and growing market. I always believe that you should be building startups for growing markets. And I think grandma is definitely a growing market. Market. But yeah, I mean, just like Helen saw, right? On March 14th, we 10x the company overnight. I mean, everything, every metric 10x, right? More people were downloading the app. More people were creating user accounts. They were making caribou calls. They were reading together. They were accessing content in a way that was, we've never seen anything like that. And I think the reason why people were so drawn to caribou was, I don't think anyone realized how video calls were really built for adults, right? Like they really suck for kids. Kids want to have fun. They want to play. They want to do something with you. They want to read a book. They want to draw. They want to be active. And when you FaceTime them or God forbid you get on Zoom with a, a child, right? There's nothing for them to do. And I think the, the pandemic really accelerated the need for better video calling for kids. And what's been really amazing is, you know, we've gotten a lot of investor interest because we really are truly the only video calling experience for kids that was built from the ground up for kids, right? A lot of these video calling platforms were built for adults. So they're not COPPA compliant. They're not thinking about safety and security of who's talking to minors. Most of them legally cannot have minors having accounts on their platforms, but Caribou is built to be safe and secure for kids. And what was also really exciting is that we really broadened our value proposition. You know, Glamma has a 12.5% hospitalization rate when she walks out the door, unfortunately, right? So Glamma is, is still a tried and true customer at Caribou. But what we also saw was kids needed better video calling experiences with other kids, right? They wanted to do things with their little five-year-old friends that they hadn't seen because kindergarten got canceled. And so they've been doing word searches on Caribou or reading books together. It was adorable. I actually saw two, I think there were seven-year-olds, their cousins, and they were reading a book together on Caribou. And then they like went off on some tangent about, do you remember when like the 
school cafeteria guard would like play fight with us. And then they w- we would throw stuff. And like, I mean, it just, it's, it was like an icebreaker for them. It allowed them to have something to do together, even though they couldn't physically be uh, together. And so we, we've seen a lot of really great response there. We've, we've also kind of aged up, right? So now eight to 12 year olds need an alternative to Fortnite because their parents don't want them on Fortnite all day. So Caribou has kind of become, and we just partnered with DC Comics to add, you know, older content to Caribou. We did a partnership with America's Test Kitchen Kids so that, you know, kids could cook with Glamma and a magical caribou call. We have origami. I mean, we really have grown in, in so many ways. And actually, I had to triple the team. We went from a team of four to 12 within the last five months. So yeah, we've been growing in this new environment, I can definitely say. So maybe continuing on that topic, you've talked about your businesses, but Helen, maybe you can give a sense for the leadership lessons you're learning as you manage through the current environment. Yeah, we did a couple things, actually. We were closing a financing round and also managing, like everyone else, a pandemic and also managing on behalf of our customers. And so I think the leadership lesson is sort of the the good lessons can come from anywhere. In the midst of all of this, what we've been trying to find in terms of leadership, so we're actually hiring and have been hiring in the middle of everything else, are folks who really kind of been through this or come from a different vantage and can really open our minds up to the many possibilities, the many ways that our company and my company moves forward. So it's a level of sort of flexibility. It's uh, really interesting in that coming into this pandemic, I had sort of a tried and true idea of who we wanted the next SVP of marketing and thus the chief storyteller of Care Academy to look like. But I got some of the best advice back in April in terms of It is in the moments of crisis where you need as many different vantages as possible. And so I've been just really trying to instill within myself and our current staff and the folks that we're bringing in, you know, how do we bring as many different vantages and ways to look at this moment and this opportunity as possible and come out even stronger as a company? We're doing you know, in spite of everything, we're doing really, really well. But I think that there's a bigger moment to reframe what healthcare looks like. And I think that's going to take a whole bunch of different, you know, sets of eyes and hearts and minds to really get that done. So being sort of flexible and amenable and and knowing that I think good advice and good talent can come from anywhere. So continuing on that thread of what is the future? I think everyone's looking for a bit of a crystal ball to figure out where's the world headed. And you all are in different industries. So maybe Sean, I can start with you. What's your perspective on what's going to have changed from consumer perspective in terms of how they behave? I touched on this a little bit earlier. I think there was just a long run secular trend to difficult transactions moving online and becoming digital. And I think all COVID has done is essentially accelerate that. In our space in the rental market, I think the impact of social distancing has meant that you know, people need to be able to make decisions very quickly and they need to be able to do them you know, in a remote way. And you know, the impact of COVID, uh, or I'd, I'd say it differently, I, I think that that's not going to change. I think post-COVID, once we you know, all kind of navigate through this environment, all COVID will have done is accelerated that trend. You know, the other things that we're seeing, you know, we're seeing things that are you know, not terribly unsurprising. You know, when we see our tenants looking for apartments, there's a big premium now on outdoor space, on patios, on roof terraces, on office space, on in-unit laundry. I'm just going to leave those out there for anybody who's leasing an apartment. Keep those features in mind. 
<laughs> I think I think a lot of tenants are looking for those features now. But I'd say fundamentally, I think what will change is the our level of comfort in interacting with the physical world, whether it's for work or for housing, and doing that in a digital way has you know, meaningfully increased. I think we're all becoming a lot more used to the idea of having really significant conversations or transactions remotely. And I think that behavior will stay in place you know, even beyond COVID. Max, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, on the consumer side, what we saw was, you know, Caribou, again, obviously great use case for Glamma, but was also used pretty heavily by traveling parents. And this was, you know, parents who either had to work late or, or work constantly on the road or just even had to do like a, a work trip once a month. But Caribou really filled a need for them. And they were purchasing things with that behavior in mind. Obviously, when COVID hit, there were a lot less traveling parents, but they were now starting to work from home. And so their consumer behavior kind of changed in what they needed to be able to be productive as a work from home parent. And what we recently just heard from one of our users was, you know, she wrote in to say that she had a national counterterrorism call that she had to be on, right? I mean, this is a very serious call where you cannot be disturbed, you know, top secret security clearance kind of thing. And she's doing it from home. And she said, she's like, I, w- I could either have a BBC News moment behind me in the Zoom call, right? Which we all know what that looks like. Or I could lock my door and my child would be banging on it incessantly. And I really was at my wits end. I didn't know what to do. And so she put her child on caribou uh, with her sister and brother-in-law and 30 minutes of peace, right? Like she's never seen anything like it. And so I think consumers are going to start looking at options and tools and resources that are just like Sean was saying, right? Like they need a home office. They need more outdoor space. They need in-home laundry. They're going to need more work from home options as well, because this is the world we live in now. And it's interesting. And I also think for us as founders, you know, as we build out kind of our our product roadmaps and our plans is like, when does that change, right? Do we ever go back to the traveling parent? Does the traveling parent also kind of the the frequency of that, does that change? Like, so thinking about those things is, it keeps me, keeps me up at night. Helen? Yeah, I just even add an echo to the sentiments that Max and Sean shared about how the home is being revised. Home is the place of work. So we're living at work. And then I think what we're seeing an exacerbation from is that, you know, your hospital, your healthcare delivery is now in your home as well. That is just what's been exacerbated. And so we, you know, speaking outside of just home care alone, the uh, Livongo teledoc deal is a big, big, you know, exacerbated merger that just happened. And that is, you know, really projecting onto the future of what healthcare looks like something that we call distributed healthcare. So it's not only about the technologies that facilitate that, but also who facilitates that, right? We really kind of see a future where it's not only a direct care worker, but it's the individual, it's yourself, right? We are already moving into a a world where healthcare is directed by self, and this is only going to exacerbate that. And so we have seen, and one of the things that were revised in terms of our, our vision and our mission as a company is not only empowering the direct care worker, but also the family caregiver and ultimately the person to be able to get healthcare in sort of a setting of their choosing and making, and that starts in the home. So I think the future that is happening right now is really here to stay. We see that happening in the government. Vice President Biden recently announced a whole platform built around the idea of long-term care and care in the home. And I mean, throughout, we're in the midst of the Democratic Convention right now, where that is a talking point over and over again. So I'm really looking forward to that future, and we're projecting into that future as well. Let's switch topics and move to access to capital. 
And certainly raising capital is an important part of being a founder and an entrepreneur. Max, you raised a seed round and you're currently raising a Series A. Can you talk about what that experience has been like and how you think it changes in this virtual environment? Yeah, I think, again, the pandemic has brought a lot of really horrible things to all of us, but there are a lot of really good things that have come out of this. I think, again, a lot of bureaucracies have fallen and I think we've taken a lot of red tape out. We've made things a lot more accessible for people. But on raising capital, especially as a woman and as a Cuban woman, right, as a a Latina, I think there were a lot of issues with the way that you would raise funds traditionally. Yeah, there's a lot of informal kind of activities that happen in fundraising, right? You're you're meeting up at conferences, you're hanging out at after parties, you're at networking events, there's a lot of alcohol. There's a lot of kind of informal trust building that's happening in the fundraising process. It's not just going to an office in Palo Alto and pitching a partner for 30 minutes. After the Me Too and Time's Up movement, that informal participation kind of changed for women, but for women only, right? So men were still kind of participating in this kind of informal fundraising process, but women were kind of shut out of it because of just the perception issue, right? I don't want to meet with a woman alone. I don't want to be at a a bar with a woman. I don't want to cause any issues, but that ended up really hurting us, right? Because that informal fundraising experience is, is actually where the investor is building trust with you. And at the early stages, when you're raising a seed round, they're investing in you. They want to know if they can trust you as a founder. And a lot of times they're you know, they're kind of building that trust with you again in these informal spaces. And what I, again, see as a silver lining of the pandemic is that now that everyone has to pitch in Zoom, now that there really are no kind of informal activities happening outside of the fundraising process, the playing field has really been leveled. And not just on that sense, but also for privilege, right? If you don't have the money to be flying out to San Francisco every month, which is kind of what you have to do when you're fundraising, or if you don't have the money to, you know, even buy the the clothing, right? That you have to sometimes show up at, like, it just, there's, there's a lot of pieces to it that we kind of take for granted that now has been eliminated and is allowing a lot more, I think, founders of color, female founders to get into this process and to be more successful. Sean, when people talk about raising capital, they're often talking about equity. You've also raised a Series A. But what I'd really like you to talk about is your debt financing. How did you and how should other founders think about their full capital structure? Yeah, I mean, I I think that, you know, you want to start, I think, for most businesses, raising money principally and primarily through, you know, an equity raise is going to be their primary source of raising capital. But I think, you know, they call it a capital market right? Because there are options (laughs) and there are other, you know, potential choices that one can make. I I think it's really valuable to always just consider all of the things that you have on the table, you know, depending upon the way you run your business, you may have receivables that you might be able to finance. You may be able to, you may be even to modify the way you charge for your service such that you pull forward subscription revenues that allow you to, you know, reinvest those revenues as you know, funding your working capital. I think there are a lot of options in whether it's the debt financing market or just really in the way you operate your business to be really creative about the way you access capital because running one of these companies, I think every CEO, not only on this call, but also probably ever would, would say, you always, there's kind of a phrase that goes around in the back of your mind. You're always kind of fundraising, even when you're not. Like right now, I'm not fundraising, but like you kind of always are, right? And I think the part of the reason that's the case is because capital can be scarce. If you can be intelligent about the way you set up 
debt financing relationships, receivable financing relationships, you know, you can create a lot of additional opportunities that, you know, give you the ability to scale and grow your business. And I think that's definitely something that venture backed companies as a whole could take more advantage of. Helen, you closed an oversubscribed Series A at $9.5 million in the middle of all of this going on. Actually, in the middle of the cohort, it was a very exciting moment for, for everyone in the cohort. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, it was, uh, it was hard. I won't even lie. I'm going to be very real. But, you know, I, I think Max and Sean spoke pretty eloquently about this. I learned from them. And I think that's also just another plug for this GS cohort. Just the value was inordinately in having peers to kind of, you know, talk with and we're still talking with each other. But these were like the the cheerleaders in the midst of it. And so it was incredible. I always maintain that for, you know, underrepresented and, and underestimated as who, who likes to say that Max? It's uh Arlen, right? Uh, Natalie Molina Nino as well. Nino, well yeah, absolutely. You know I think it's imperative to have narrative. One of the things I really got coached on as we were fundraising is talking about why Care Academy matters now before I think a lot of the events, the early part of the pandemic. And that is, I think, being able to tell that story. Now, given that it's a Series A, one of the things that I learned pretty quickly was we're going and shifting away from, you know, the the narrative of, of me as a founder or us as a company and more so about the numbers that showed that we'd had the traction and the success and really saying that this can be even more exacerbated because of the moment that we're in. So I, literally in the midst of, you know, the pandemic, I'm sure every single startup founder had a board member or current investor or even future looking investors say, what's going on and how are you going to make it through this? And for us, it was being as proactive as possible about what's going on and why this is actually a very opportune moment for us and why we have to rise to the occasion. And I think that's what really sort of set us above. That was the reason and the rationale for sort of the last minute oversubscription was people going, oh, wow, people are going to start making the march into home care. How do we set up Care Academy and how do we paint the narrative as Care Academy about why they're going to do that? And sure enough, we're seeing that right now. So really hone your craft, your narrative, no matter what you know your financing looks like or your capital structure looks like. What you're always doing is you're selling everyone right on the value of your company. And especially in this moment, you know, how do you sort of compare to this moment? How are you in this moment? And how are you taking also advantage of the crisis of this moment? That was very helpful and thoughtful, and we're, we're all cheering for all of you and, and for, the, for the rest of the cohort. But before we get to the end, I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. So Max, can you give us your founder story? Yes. So again, I'm a Juban, actually. I'm a Jewish Cuban. And so hustling is in my blood because, you know, when you're persecuted and just fleeing from country to country, you just got to make do with what you've got uh, and <laughs> what you have. And if we can keep 1956 Chevys running in Cuba, then we are a very, very resourceful and innovative people. And so I've, I've always wanted to fix problems. I've always wanted to solve problems. I've always wanted to find problems, which is fun. But I kind of always wanted to do it in an institutional way, right? Or in a formal way. So I was a public school teacher, right? I was going to solve the problem of educational inequity, right? From the classroom. And then I realized, wow, I am 
really not solving the global problem from the classroom. And, and as much as I loved my experience, I was like, I got to think bigger. And I, you know, kind of went to work with Mayor Bloomberg and was like, oh, New York City is big. And then I was like, that's still not big enough. And I went to the Gates Foundation and I was like, this is still not big enough. And I went to the White House and I was like, this is still not big enough. And what I also saw at each point was that it was in the education space, in this traditional education space, it was adults fighting with adults about what's best for kids. And I felt a lot of times that kids were left out of the conversation or that we were making decisions that were most cost-effective, but maybe weren't as pedagogically effective for kids. And that's kind of when I decided I was like, I'd had it, right? Like, Jack, as we say, and I decided I'm going to do this myself. And I think that was around the time that kind of ed tech was starting to pick up and people... And again, I think the pandemic has done more for education than than almost anything else. It was the biggest shock to the system and it uncovered a lot of inequities, but also allowed us to finally meet kids where they are, to personalize learning, to give them more access to things. And I realized very quickly I had to do my own thing. And that's kind of where Caribou came from. Fantastic. So before we end, I'm going to do one piece of advice from everyone. So maybe Helen, we'll start with you. In this moment, I think I always have one word for myself. And I think that looks like different things to different people, but persistence is key. I think in this moment and any moment within entrepreneurship, just really, you know, taking the time to gather oneself and find a source of strength is absolutely key for me. I'm a woman of faith. That's what is authentic to my own experience. And that has been sort of the rallying cry of my life through, you know, 2020 and and really before that. So if anything, you know, persist through this and this is nothing new for entrepreneurs. So I'm heartened by what entrepreneurship means in this country. I come from a family of entrepreneurs and the only way we've ever done it is through persistence. Sean? I'm going to quote the first entrepreneur I ever knew, which was my mom and still the best entrepreneur I know, myself included. Um, (laughs) You know, I think one of the earliest lessons I learned and time and time and again, it's repeated itself is you must be willing and able and committed to adapt. You know, I think 2020 in particular has probably forced most entrepreneurs to do. I I am fairly certain that everyone on this call, and I mean literally everyone on this call, (laughs) you know, had a game plan for 2020 coming into January. And that game plan has dramatically changed since March, probably. And, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, you can find yourself a little bit dazed and confused. You can find yourself like locked into one path that you invest so much time and effort and focus on going down this one path. And then the world changes like that. And if you don't have that inherent ability to reassess the situation, decide whether or not your old opinions or old points of view were correct. And then if they weren't, say that they were wrong and move in a different direction uh, and be able to do that, you know, almost ruthlessly, you are going to find it difficult to survive long enough to build your business, you know, to the place and to the heights that you want to. And so I think, you know, being able to adapt, to acclimate to new environments and never get, you know, roll with the punches a bit. I think that that's a very key skill that you know, certainly has served me for a very long time. And I think every entrepreneur would benefit from. Max? Yeah, I think I'm following the theme of like, you know, just be less risk averse and more risk seeking. And I know that right now during a pandemic that feels 
unsettling, but being uncomfortable is actually the space that I think us entrepreneurs play in every day, 24 seven. And I just always you know, love to give the advice that there's never a good time to launch a business. Never, right? Just like starting a family, buying a home, adopting a dog. Like there's never, you are never prepared enough. You are never financially secure enough. But if you have something that the world needs and you are the best person to build it, then my advice is jump in chancletas first and just go build it. Well, thank you guys. It's really great advice. I learned a lot and it was really fun. So I want to thank you for joining me today, Helen, Sean, and Max. And I want to really thank you for continued partnership that you have with Goldman Sachs. We're so grateful to be part of your entrepreneurial journey. And so that concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thank you all for listening. And if you enjoy the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and comment. And tune in later in the week for our weekly markets update where leaders around the firm provide their quick take on the latest in markets. This podcast was recorded on August 20th, 2020. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.